Hey, Soma Church, this is Kent. I am jumping in on the front of this podcast to let you know that Soma Downtown has its own podcast feed. We started our own podcast feed in this time where all the congregations are posting not only all their sermon audio, but also a lot of midweek content. And so we thought this would be easier for everybody if we could take all our content that we're posting a couple times a week and have it all in one place. And that way it would also unclog the Soma Indie podcast feed uh, moving forward. So we're going to post for a little bit just to let people know that we do have uh, a feed in this feed still, uh, or this feed being the Soma Indie feed, but pretty soon we won't. So if you do want to continue, you can search Soma Downtown Podcast on, we are now available on pretty much all the major platforms, including Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, uh, Anchor, and yeah, just caster or yeah, pocket cast, all those. So uh, we'd love to have you come and subscribe on whatever you use and choose to to listen to podcasts through. And we'll see you over there. Yeah. All right. Ready for a live video. This is my first time, I mean, other than digital gatherings, but I don't really feel like those count. Uh, we're trying our first experiment with just doing a midweek live video and double experiment. I'm also recording a podcast right now. So this is going to be an episode of the Summer Downtown podcast. And I told Tayshawn I was recording and he said, why don't you just make it a, a live video while you record it and it can help as we just continue to interact with our people via Instagram live. So everybody who's hopping on, um, welcome. This is me recording a podcast of Soma Downtown podcast and this is possibly the most Instagram worthy podcast we've had to this point. Uh, this was by no meaning, <laughs> hey Jessica, uh, is by no uh, way that I meant to do it this way. I just, on my bike right in, I thought, you know what would be interesting would be to do a podcast on spiritual formation and the Enneagram. And this is something that we did a conference on last year and it was hugely popular just because I think people are interested or intrigued by the Enneagram and I think there's been a lot written about how there can be a lot of benefits when it comes to spiritual formation. And so I wanted to basically just see, okay, how do we, it's something that I think about a lot. Um, in fact, I think about uh, the Enneagram a lot in general, um, not because, I don't know, uh, I'm more into self-awareness than I am into, uh, in a self-awareness tool than I am in the Bible, but because I... I think it is super helpful, and I think it also is something that my wife, Sharon, has become certified in profile reading and just like helping people develop deeper self-awareness through the Enneagram. And uh, then the more that she's gotten into it, the more I've kind of like dug down in the wormhole, and we talk about it a lot. And it's just been, I think, yeah, at the end of the day, a kind of a helpful, helpful thing. So, um, yeah, it's... Again, nothing that's uh, more important than scripture. In fact, let me just uh, really briefly too. Oh, before I say that, I'll say credentials. On you're like, Kent, who are you to talk about the Enneagram? What do you know? Okay, first of all, my wife is certified. Uh, so I'm related to somebody who's certified. Uh, but secondly, uh, I also did a lot of 
counseling with uh, Rich Plass of Cross Point Ministries. And Rich is, uh, I mean, he is a pastor's pastor. He is a, um, oh, I forgot to knock this off. It always gives me buzzing in the background, so I'll t- turn that off. Yeah, he's a guy who, he's been a church planner, but he's also been a counselor for years now. He's actually retired from Cross Point Ministries, but he continues to function uh, in counseling, particularly for pastors and relationships he's already established. And so he does a lot of pastoral uh, counseling uh, work with all, a lot of our team. And he is very committed to the Enneagram as a spiritual formation tool. He has studied deeply into it. Uh, he uses uh, a profile called the Webb's Profile, uh, which is the Wagner, uh, basically the Wagner Enneagram uh scale uh, is what, uh, there's some other letters involved there, but that's pretty much what it is. And he's one where he's like, he won't even see a person in his room unless he has, uh, unless he has their, their Enneagram profile. And he just believes that deeply and knowing that, but he says, hey, it doesn't really work to have the Enneagram profile about self. You have to have the Enneagram profile and know a person's story. And only when those two things are together do you actually have something that can be beneficial. And so um, that's kind of – I've worked with, with him a lot. I've talked with him a lot about that as well, as well as, like I said, Sharon's become certified over the time. And I found that to be beneficial uh, to just as we talk about uh, Enneagram and spiritual formation. So I was like, hey, this is, I think, an interesting topic, uh, one that I'm passionate about. Uh, so – I said, let's record a podcast about it. And then Tayshawn said, why don't you do an Instagram live video too? So here we are. Um, First, before we jump into Enneagram and spiritual formation, the the purpose of this episode is really just to kind of do a high level overview. And then I might even come back, Sharon and I talk about coming back and doing another podcast interview, uh, like an episode where I interview her as she actually is certified in in, uh, reading uh, Enneagram profiles for, uh, for the web's profile. Um, but before we jump into that overview, I want to deal with the one big question I think a lot of people always talk about when the Enneagram is involved, because they're always just like, I already made reference to this. People are always like a little skeptical of the Enneagram, right? I mean, if you look at the figure online, it's a nine point, it's a, uh, you know, an Enneagram is like a pentagon, you know, or a a pentagram or something like that, like, you know, five points. So a pentagram, you know, which is a satanic image. Uh, is looks a lot like an Enneagram. So a lot of people are like, man, this looks like ritualistic or satanic or something. And that's only because it's a nine-point figure. And so, yes, it looks similar to a five-point figure. Uh, but it does not necessarily have satanic roots. Um, and people, if they're not necessarily concerned about that, might even look at the Enneagram and say, well, like, why would we use the Enneagram when we have perfectly biblical categories for talking about spiritual formation, for uh, looking into spiritual formation, for looking into self-awareness. I mean, yes, yeah, uh, like it can be a beneficial tool to uh, know yourself better, but the Bible can be a beneficial tool. And so why don't we just use biblical language and biblical imagery? And why use I'm an eight or I'm a seven or I'm a two, which by the way, people, that's why people hate the Enneagram. Quit referring to yourself as numbers and quit referring to other people's numbers. It's annoying. Um, but at the same time, once you're kind of deep into it, you just can't not. I had a conversation with somebody on a Sunday morning about Enneagram and we were just sitting there flying back and forth between numbers and wings and arrows. And there was a third person standing by us. Um, and she was just like, you guys sound like you are a stinking parody of an Enneagram conversation. And you just can't not. Hey, Hannah. Hannah's waving. Um, And so, 
Either way, again, I say to the podcast, uh, I'm going to be interacting with comments because I'm on Instagram Live as well. And so if you're listening to this later and you're like, how's Hannah waiting? It's because she's on Instagram Live right now. Um, anyway, so uh, so yeah, it, it basically comes down to a sense of people are confused, I think, of what to do with non-biblical tools. And this really becomes a question of are you integrationist in your thinking or are you a biblicist in your thinking? And I don't think a lot of people use that vocabulary. I think it's becoming a little bit more popular now, but I'm actually, I've, I've noticed I'm getting more questions about this than anything else, uh, about like people asking like, hey, what do you think about this non-biblical source? Now, what do you think about non-biblical sources in general? And the, again, this question is about integrationism versus biblicism. Um, they both have a wide range of definitions. Um, possibly you've heard those terms and you've heard them defined and you probably you think one of them is like really of the devil because those two groups like everybody on social media right now tend to caricature each other and then put out like false definitions of what the other one thinks. And so there's both a very charitable way to define integrationists and biblicists and there's both a very uncharitable way. And what I basically see online and what most people I think put out there is very uncharitable ways uh, of defining the other the other side. And so... Um, it, real quick, just on that, integrationists are, they are people who see God's word as being inspired and God's word as being authoritative, uh, but God's word is not exhausted to teach us everything about every topic. And so we can use God's word to learn about him, how to relate to him, and we can learn many things that like are even outside of those categories, but are not necessarily meant to like, like we weren't meant to like use God's word as our science textbooks, and we weren't meant to use it as our math textbooks, and we weren't meant to use it as brain surgery. Or, you know, like if I can't learn brain surgery from the Bible, then should I learn it? Um, and uh, so that's one way of saying, like, okay, integrations, integrationists believe in the image of God. Everyone is made in the image of God, so therefore everyone has knowledge, everybody has wisdom, everybody can have wisdom. Uh, but not only are people made in the image of God, um, that we are given the spirit of God and that all God, all truth is God's truth. And so an integrationist would say, hey, if somebody, regardless if they're a Christian or not, regardless if they have the spirit fully animating them or not, they are made in the image of God, have the ability to come across truth and put it out there. And if we recognize it as God's truth, then we should claim it as God's truth. Like, hey, God has given them wisdom. He's given them something true. You see Paul do this. In one of his letters, what is it, Romans? When he writes, you know, he's writing and he like he says, or no, it's in the book of Acts. And he says like, hey, even your own, uh, he's talking with a group of people that are pagans. And he says, even your own prophets say this. And he quotes from pagan prophets. And he makes a point of like saying like, hey, all truth is God's truth. I can quote from a pagan prophet because that pagan prophet made in the image of God came across something that was true. And so I'm going to call it out. Um, and so that's what an integrationist is. They see like, hey, let's look at all wisdom and let's compare it to scripture. And scripture, of course, is authoritative over it. But uh, we can still engage in things such as the Enneagram that are not scriptural, but we recognize have things that are pointing out that are true. And same thing goes for Myers-Briggs or uh, again, brain surgery, college. I mean, that's why you can go to school. You can even learn something, authentically learn something from someone who's a completely different faith tradition than you because they're made in the image of God and, and they just probably have some gifts and skills that you don't have. And so that's integrationist thinking. Biblicist thinking, and that sounds, see, there's the tricky thing. I, I, as you can tell by my description of integrationist, I lean that way. Uh, and I maybe historically leaned, leaned as an integrationist thinker, uh, or sorry, a biblicist thinker, 
And uh, biblicism sounds uh, sounds best to if you value the Bible, because you're like, well, biblicist thinker, I'm on, I'm board for that. Um, again, I think there's a charitable and uncharitable way to define it. An uncharitable way to define biblicist thinking is like, um, yeah, like we shouldn't go to college because they're not going to teach the Bible. We shouldn't go to school because they're not going to teach the Bible or something like that. Um, or uh, you could have something like, yeah, if, if, yeah, like I already said, if brain surgery isn't taught in scripture, then maybe we weren't supposed to know brain surgery. That's not very a charitable way to, to say biblicist thinking. A biblicist thinking or thinker is someone who just says like, hey, let's first and foremost view everything through scripture. Yes, occasionally we might have to use extra scriptural sources, but if there's an opportunity to use a scriptural source, let's use that. Let's let's put skepticism and doubt on things that are not scriptural because they're made by, you know, not people who are not filled with the spirit of God, don't have the wisdom of God. And while I think there's a good heart behind that of people like saying like, hey, let's be intentional and formative in our discipleship. Let's not confuse people with things that might not, you know, like let's not endorse something that then might later refute the gospel. They're just trying to go for clarity. Um, but I think what they end up doing is they subvert the image of God. They they end up taking a low view of the image of God in people. And again, they say like, well, if you're not really a Christian, then you can't have any truth or any wisdom. You're just, a, you know, they overinterpret Romans 1, where Paul's like saying like, hey, you're a fool until you're in Christ. Well, Paul's not in that moment saying like, you're incapable of having wise thoughts or contributing to society. He's just saying like, ultimately, you're not filled with the spirit. And so you look at things like the gospel and you see this foolishness and actually that's foolish. Um, but you're still wise and you still have a lot of beauty and, and wisdom and things to contribute to the world. And so anyway, that is just a high level view of biblicism versus integrationism. And because I don't think people use those categories. And so that's what we're having when we talk about the Enneagram. We're having a biblicism versus integrationism uh, conversation. Ultimately to take the Enneagram and to utilize it into spiritual formation is an integrationist way of thinking that the Enneagram was created by people made in the image of God. Um, what's good we should take and utilize what we don't feel like is scriptural. We should pass on and move beyond, but at the end, at the end of the day, we're free to engage in it. Um, and so, uh, that's just kind of uh, what I always like to put out there to people to say, Hey, this is why I don't think it's like crazy to talk about this. And this is why it's not satanic. Uh, this is why it's actually really beneficial. Um, but Either way, uh, that said, let's just talk really quick. Enneagram. As I already said, Enneagram means nine-sided figure. And so that's literally, or nine-sided polygon. That's literally what it is. It's just Enneagram, nine-sided polygon. And it's because there are nine types or nine personalities that the Enneagram is going to be saying like, hey, everyone is a mix of all nine of these things. Um, but more or less you have one that you most dominantly go to and then one that you second most dominantly go to and, and so on and so forth. Um, but again, I, I, the way that I like to picture the Enneagram is, uh, actually here you go. Here's your metaphor. Um, the little, uh, children's toys, uh, I, of course all my metaphors come from children's toys right now, baby toys even, uh, the baby toys, which are like a stack of rings. You know, and so they have that little stat, they have a little stand, a yellow stand. You put the big, you know, blue ring on, and then you put the slightly less big green ring, and then the yellow, and then the orange, and then the red, right? That's kind of what the Enneagram is to me, is that there's these nine core desires of human hearts. And there's a lot of variations within those desires, but more or less, you kind of like could say, okay, yeah, there's nine core desires. 
And so with those nine core desires, you then as a human figure out which of those nine core desires is like the one that I will not give on. It is my most fundamental desire as a human. And I'm willing to give a little bit on the other eight if it means I get to keep number nine. And that is like that base big blue ring. That one goes down first. And that is your your dominant style. That's your dominant Enneagram type. And so that's when people say like, I'm a four or I'm a two. What they're saying is the, the desire that is represented by the second profile is the most core to my fundamental desire of humanity. And I'm willing to give, and again, I think you stack them all up. So then eventually you like take the one that you're least, you know, concerned about. You're still concerned about it because you're concerned about all the desires as a human, but you're just willing to be like, I'm willing to give that one up. You know, maybe even I'll trade that one because it keeps these other ones safer. Uh, you'll knock the first three, four, five off. And then once you get down to like the sixth, seventh, eighth, ninth, you know, those foundational ones, you're like, I will part with this with my cold dead hands because it's, important to you. It's really been based on your story, how you've been formed. And so just real quick uh, overview of those nine core desires. Uh, you have uh, one is the, you could call this person the good person, the perfectionist, uh, the reformer. Um, the two is the helper um, or yeah, the helpful person. Um, the, uh, the lover, I've heard them referred to, they love and they care for other people. Uh, one wing two here. There we go. All right. We got people tossing out their numbers. All right, Jessica. <laughs> I like it. Um, and so you can have three. Uh, the three type is the successful person, the, um, the achiever. Um, four is the romantic, the authentic person, the creative, the, uh, yeah, there's a bunch of different ones. Again, all these have multiple one, uh, multiple names or multiple ways to describe them. The five is the wise person or the, um, the investigator. Uh, six is the loyalist or the safe person. Um, seven is the enthusiast or the joyful person. Eight is um, the challenger or the controlling person, um, and nine would be the peacemaker or the peaceful person. And as I just lay those out, you get a picture of what you think they mean, but actually I would argue, it, it, even if you're like decently acquainted with the Enneagram, a lot of times I think people misunderstand Enneagram profiles and I think they do it in a couple ways. Um, the first one is the deceptiveness of the names. Uh, I just ran through those names, and again, you really quickly, based off of your background, your uh, ideas, got a quick idea of like what it meant to be the perfectionist or the good person or a one. Um, the thing is, is it doesn't necessarily uh, the, the best. The best example is nine, the peace, the peacemaker. People have an idea of what a peacemaker is. Obviously, a peacemaker is someone who sees two feuding parties and they make peace. But again, it's not about how a person behaves, the Enneagram, it's about their core desire which makes them behave that way. And so a peacemaker's core desire is to be at peace personally. They're not so concerned about your peace. I mean, that typically they are just because that affects their peace. But they desire to be at peace. They desire to be free from stress or relational angst and all those things. And so they want with all their being to be at peace and so often that will exhibit itself in making peace with other people. Because again, if you're at peace, I'm more at peace. If you're feuding, then you're messing with my peace. So you guys need to, and, and that's, of course, you know, like there's more 
altruistic things that are going on in their hearts a lot of times, particularly if they're healthier or not uh, versus not. But again, that's a way to kind of like see it's not so much about the activity. Sometimes nines don't care. The whole world could be feuding around them and they don't care. Because uh, that's not what they're most, that's not what affects their peace the most. And so that's not what they're going to be most concerned about. However, as an archetype, as most commonly as a rule that gets with many exceptions, a person who is a nine desires peace. And that often means that they like relational peace amongst the people around them. And so therefore they tend, tend to make peace. So that's one way people confuse the ideas. The names sometimes are very unhelpful. Um, the second way that people, uh, I think, misunderstand the nine styles is through the archetypes, which I already mentioned with the nine. Uh, but again, the desire is what you're trying to get at, not the behavior. And so a lot of times they'll say, hey, here's what a three is. A three is somebody who's always working, always on the go. They love success. They want to drive a Ferrari. They want to, uh, you know, they have all the medals. They're a chameleon. They're a personality that just shapes and shifts. They always have a tinted window. And like, so they give you this whole view of that's what a three is. But again, a three is not a three about the way they behave. A three is a three because of their desire to achieve. And you can actually do that in very different ways. Uh, the best example of this is Dorothy Day. Dorothy Day um, is a Catholic missionary uh, who basically made herself one of the most intentionally poor people in the world to serve the most poor people throughout the entire world. And she did this because she had a desire to see the kingdom of God be achieved. And so she was very much so a three. She very much so was working out of a, I want to achieve, but she didn't get a Ferrari and she didn't become the top corner office or the CEO. She actually became completely impoverished. And so you look at it and you're like, okay, wait a second. She doesn't look like a three because she doesn't look like the archetype. So you'd miscategorize her. You might categorize her as a five because that almost might be something a five might do. Or you might categorize her as a two because she's trying to serve other people. But actually she is in fact a three. She just was very ambitious and she was willing to become the poorest person. She was, she was going all the way to the top of the mountain, even if the top of the mountain was the bottom of the valley of poverty for her. And so that's another way. Again, uh, the other one that I always point out is the one. Uh, the one often sometimes gets miscategorized. The one, again, is the perfectionist or the good person. And people always think of the one as like they are, yeah, they're the good person. They have this strong moral conscience and they live in that moral conscience. I mean, a lot of Christians uh, act more like ones than they might otherwise because Christianity tends to, you know, desire you to, or at least, you know, talks about morality and talks about being good. And so there can be a sense of like, uh, again, so the basic core desire, if I'm going to phrase it for the one, is just... They want to know they are good. And whatever they define as their source of the person who says, hey, you're good, and that says, okay, that person says I'm good, or that organization, or if my brain says I'm good, then I'm good. Um, and so that can be the classic sense of it is like a biblical morality of like, hey, the Bible says uh, do this, and if I do this, I'm good. Or it could be the, uh, you could be a, Maybe the opposite, like, so yeah, somebody who like probably is more concerned about the biblical view of, of morality is probably a little bit more conservative or, you know, whether that be socially or just politically or whatever. You could actually have somebody who's very politically liberal uh, who their definition of being good or what they want to be called good as is one who cares deeply about the environment. And if they are shown as somebody who cares about the environment and, uh, and, and, and obeys the rules of, you know, to prevent global warming and to prevent 
um, you know, uh, pollution, and they are good. And they're good. And so those are two wildly different people, but they both would fit under the Enneagram One style. So that's again, uh, people look at the archetypes, and I think sometimes they're helpful because they can look at them and be like, oh, okay, how much is that true of me? But at the end of the day, you got to throw the archetypes out because it's not about behavior it's about desire so there's nine core desires which do you put as your base ring of that baby ring stand and which one is the top one that you're like i don't really i care about it but because i'm a human but i'll give on it and i'll give on this one and i'll give on this one but this one you can pull out of my cult dead hands because that's pretty much how it goes um here's another thing that i think people often do with the enneagram that's a problem um hold on product placement for lacroix um, I, uh, I'm, I'm not getting paid by them, but if they want to pay me, we got to fund the church through COVID-19 somehow, LaCroix. So, um, just joking. Are people still being generous? Thank you for your generosity. <laughs> All right. Um, another way that people, I think, really misunderstand and misuse the Enneagram and spiritual formation is they make it too much about your dominant number. Oh my gosh. I could preach on this soapbox for a while. Um, this is mainly put forward by the national uh, authors and conferences on the Enneagram and books. Um, and I get why they do that. Because when you have a wide audience, you need to have a narrow message, right? And so in a wide audience, when you talk about the Enneagram, you just want to say like, hey, what is your dominant number? And that makes sense because that's a narrow message and it's easy to talk through a wide audience that way. But if you actually are using the Enneagram in a way that's helpful, I think most helpful, your dominant is good to know, but it's not as helpful as knowing how you're made up of all nine. And so how all nine stack up is a good thing. That's what you want to know. You want to know how much, uh, what is my dominant and how much larger is it than my, my secondary dominant and how much, uh, what's my lowest and how diminished is that lowest? Um, and I have these as my top three and that's going to make me a very different person than if I have th these two plus this other one in my top three. And so you want to know who you are. Like, so for instance, again, this was me working with Rich Plass, um, Rich Plass, uh, counselor and, and founded cross point ministries, writes a relational soul, brilliant man, loves the Enneagram and he really focuses in on it. And I remember for the longest time I took my first profile and I'm like, the first profile had me 99% seven, uh, the joyful person, the enthusiast, but it also had me 97% four, which is the, yeah, you know, the authentic, the, uh, the romantic, the uh, creative and all that. And you're like, okay, which one is it? Cause seven and four, actually a lot of times people view those as like polar opposites because seven is usually thought of as like joyful and fun in the archetype and four is like brooding and dour <laughs> and, uh, melancholy. And interestingly enough, I've actually talked to a lot of people that say seven and fours tend to go together because the more you, higher you're seven, the higher you're four. The higher you're happy, the higher you go sad. It's a pendulum. Either way, um, and so for the longest time, I was like, am I seven or four? Am I seven or four? You can't you know, decide which one I am. And I was talking with Rich Plass about this, and he's like, what do you care? Be a seven four or be a four seven. Or like, it doesn't matter if you're a seven or you're a four. It matters what all your numbers go together. It matters what you get from this so that you can learn more self-awareness, so that you can be understanding of who you are, who God made you to be, what are your weaknesses, uh, what are your um, uh, your strengths, and how has God formed you in the image of God? So it's like the Enneagram isn't about knowing, am I a 
two, it's about knowing I'm this much two, I'm this much nine, I'm this much six, I'm this much four, and I have my, my three is really diminished, which is why I don't get a lot done, <laughs> which is why I don't really care about achieving, which is why I don't care about it, my image. Uh, and my three is really uh, down, uh, down low. Um, so yeah, in fact, the, the, the web's profile talks about your top three. The web's profile, I think, is one of the most, the best profiles for getting an accurate reading. Um, but, uh, because it has intentional things in the test that if you're trying to get a number, like if you're efforting something or if you're like unself-aware, it actually will denote to somebody who can, uh, read the profile really well who's certified to read the profile, it'll denote, oh, this person, like, they answered this on this, this on question 23, but they answered this on 43, so actually it means this. <laughs> They're actually confused about themselves. So that's why I think it's a helpful profile, but it's actually not very accurate at getting your dominant profile, but it's very accurate at getting your top three. So it, does, it, it doesn't know of those top three, which is your actual dominant. Are you actually a two? Are you actually a four? Are you actually a six? Are you actually a nine? But the top three are very accurate. And so it gets your top triad, which again, is more helpful to know because your top three, a, a dominant seven, who is also a four, who is also a nine, is going to be wildly different than a dominant seven, who is also a four, who is also a five. And so it's really helpful to know multiple numbers, how they go together. It's not about your dominant. So again, this is why people think the Enneagram is so annoying because people just walk around being like, I'm a two, I'm a six, I'm a one. And you're a, and they, and they, they diagnose other people. You're a three and I hate you because you're three. Or I don't know. They just do this stupid stuff where you're just like, yo, yeah, oh, yo, don't say anymore. You're a five. And uh, you're a five, wing four. And that explains so much about you. And if you don't know the Enneagram, you're like, okay, uh, I'm so excited to learn more about this tool that makes me want to punch you in the face. And so stop doing that. It's not about dominance anyway. Um, and this is all, again, maybe this is, this is where I should end because this has been helpful information for people so far. Um, so last thing I'll say before I want to jump into just uh, a little bit more about each number and then how spiritual formation works um, is that one other classic mistake people do with the Enneagram is they think it should be about figuring out my weaknesses and making them better. And even when, in the Christian perspective of the Enneagram, uh, Richard Rohr writes a book, The Christian Perspective of the Enneagram, which he's become controversial because of certain thoughts he has on the atonement. Uh, but regardless, this was before that. It's a helpful book um, uh, that I haven't read. I've just read long quotes from because that's what I do. I read long quotes from books and then I, I guess the rest. Um, that's, come on, whatever. Either way, uh, not always, but dominantly. Either way, uh, the Christian perspective of the Enneagram, and not Richard Rohr's book about that title, but just when people talk about the, the Enneagram from a Christian perspective, they'll talk about like, well, Jesus was a mixture of all nine numbers. Like he was the perfect, he was 100% in all nine t styles. I don't know if that's true or not. I don't really, I'm not worried about if that's true or not, but here's what I know is true about real people. You are not Jesus. Um, though you can be filled with the spirit like we're talking about on Sundays. And you can be filled with the same spirit that uh, he did everything with. And so that's not the point. The point is, is that you're not all nine types and you're never going to be all nine types. And it's this very American work on my weaknesses thing that we try to do all the time where we think like, how can I bring up my weaknesses so that we can be independent people. 
That's what we want to be. That's the myth of the American cowboy is somebody who is independent of need of help of anyone ever at all times. And so if there's a, pro a profile for your personality, I'm going to find out my weaknesses and I'm going to strengthen my weaknesses so I don't need other people. I think the Enneagram is only helpful when it shows you here's your strengths and here's your weaknesses. And rather than working on your weaknesses, which you could spend 15 hours working on this one weakness, or you could spend one hour and work on your strength and get the same result and have more time and be less stressed and feel less incompetent. I think the Enneagram helps to show people your need for other people and your need for the body of Christ. Because you're like, man, I'm really good at this. I have this desire and I function really well in this way. And I don't understand that desire at all. It's really diminished in me, maybe through my childhood background, maybe through thinking that's wrong or, or abuse or whatever, I just shut that off. And that, yes, there's a good, healthy journey I need to go on figuring out why that desire, which is actually a good desire, is not wrong and that's okay, but I probably am never going to be good at it. That's just not who I'm going to be. And so someone else is going to be great at it. And guess what? The body of Christ means you're good at that and I'm good at this and we can share and love and serve one another. So yeah, when people try to make it all about like how do I function as the omnicompetent nine-sided polygram known as the Enneagram, Enneagram Kent, uh, I think you're off. Learn what you're good at, learn what you're weak at, and learn what other people are good at and weak at, and interact with them as a body. Because that's biblical, and it's good. That's where spiritual formation comes in, and it's really good. Um, okay, those are all my uh, upfront things. Real quick, because uh, I'm not going to go long on this at all. Uh, I'm going to just run through the nine different profiles in a little bit more depth than I just did. Not too much more because, again, I think I'm going to come back with a with a second podcast, which is maybe interviewing Sharon, who uh, my wife, who is um, she is certified in the Enneagram and in reading profiles for the for the Wagner profile. Um, so I might do an interview with her and get a little bit more deeper into these. But quick rundown: uh, number one, already said, perfectionist, good person. They, their core desire is to be good or to just be perfect a lot of times. They just they love black and white and gray should pick a side. And they believe if there's something right and good, then it's worth fighting for. And so they are often very critical. And they I mean that in the best way. They're critical and they're always thinking through like how could this be better or what's wrong with this and what could we fix it. Um, and so they're really great when it comes to just like having like a one around to like just be like, hey, what do you think about this? Give me your honest feedback. They'll give you your honest feedback and it'll be helpful and it'll be really good. Now, one thing that they often do is they'll turn the guns on themselves. They will be critical to themselves and they will tear themselves apart. And ones often sometimes have the lowest self-esteem just because they have this voice in their head saying, you're not enough, you're not enough, you're not enough, you're not enough. And it's exhausting. I have a very high non-resourceful one. I haven't talked about resourceful and non-resourceful, so let me just give you a quick update, uh, quick view into that. When you do a profile such as the WEPS profile, W-E-P-S-S, -S, the Wagner profile, you will get three scores for each number. You will get your overall score, and the way I, this was best described by Rich Plass is like if you think of them as nine different tools, you get nine different core desires, nine different tools, a lot of different metaphors you could use, nine different tools, uh, your overall score is your likelihood to pick up that tool. And so uh, I'm going to pick up the, the, the one tool, the, uh, the seeking for good, for perfection, to change things for the better. Um, you'll get a resourceful score for the one, 
That is how often you tend to pick up that tool and use it in a healthy way. So again, for the one that I'm gonna change things, you see injustice and you fight to see it changed. Um, you see an idea that's wrong and you fight for people to know truth. Uh, that is a resourceful way to be a one. And then you get a non-resourceful score. And the non-resourceful score is how often you use that tool in a really unhealthy way. So uh, again, using the one, you use that perfectionist desire to turn the guns inward and just tear yourself apart. And just this constant voice says, you're not enough. You'll never be enough. You'll never be enough. That is a non-resourceful one. And so again, when you take a profile for Enneagram, you get your overall, how much am I going to pick up that tool? Is it a hammer? I'm picking up the hammer. Resourceful. I'm using it in a healthy way. I'm hammering nails. Non-resourceful. I'm using an unhealthy way. I'm, I'm hammering noses and faces of people who disagree with me. Uh, or I'm hammering myself in the head because I just don't think I'm enough. So uh, those are your non-resourceful and resourceful. Those get referred to all the time. So that's helpful that you know that. Either way, I have a very high non-resourceful one, uh, which means I'm very self-critical. It means that I'm constantly thinking through, oh, did I do that right? I'm always very unsure of a lot of decisions I make. I desire a lot of affirmation for decisions that I make or for things that I do. Uh, I, I don't play that way. I think I play as someone who's very self-confident. Um, and uh, <laughs> newsflash, I'm not. Uh, and it's not like, this isn't the thing like I'm begging everybody to give me lots of feedback and compliments on my sermons though. That'd be nice. Um, but it's rather the sense of just saying, um, no, a lot of times you don't see the, the non-resourceful one. It's so interior. It's so built in. We, uh, you typically say if you have a non-resourceful non one that uh, you probably had a very critical parent um, or a very critical mentor or coach um, that, again, was doing a lot of good to help drive you to succeed but you internalized some of it as I'm not enough and I'll never be enough. And that, that banner is what you're living your life under. And so when you learn from the West profile, I have a non-resourceful one. This is again where spiritual formation takes, uh, takes into place. You can learn, okay, when I hear that voice, you're not enough. I can say, thank you voice. You've helped me. And a lot of times you've helped me better myself. You've helped me maybe at different times. Um, not be satisfied with something less than my best, but you need to shut up now. You've been driving the ship too long and um, you've been beneficial, but at ease. And so uh, you can learn that about yourself and you can learn sometimes when you're tearing yourself up about, man, I'm not reading my Bible enough. I'm not praying enough. I'm not spiritual enough. I'm, I'd never be able to do all the things that the really holy people could do. Maybe that's just a non-resourceful one. A non-resourceful perfectionist being like, yeah, you, you can't do it perfectly, so you'll never be enough. Well, what, what in the world? Like, there's a big difference between perfection and don't do it at all. There's a big gap, a much bigger gap than I can put on a, you know, vertical phone. It's more like this, but you can't see that. And so, yeah, it's, don't get me started on this sense where it's just like, I, I forever, I'm just like, if I can't do it perfectly, I'm just not going to do it at all. And so I end up not doing a lot. And... I wish I, earlier in life, would have realized, no, it's okay. Just be like, I can't do this perfectly. I'm going to fail. I've never done it before. I should expect to fail a little bit, but I can go forward. Um, and I can practice. I can read my Bible, and I can memorize this passage, and it's okay that I didn't get it perfectly the first day. It's okay that when I prayed, it wasn't the most eloquent. It's okay that when I got up and preached, I just, that sermon, dove on its face. And that's okay, because at the end of the day, Jesus loves me, spirit empowers me. Um, and 
and I can look at my life and not view it as like 100% or 0% are the only two grades. I can say, hey, I can have a batting average. And batting average, if you're hitting 300, which means that every 10 times you go up, you get three hits, um, you are killing it. And a shooting percentage in basketball, if you get 50% of your shots, half of them, you're, a, you're probably a big man, you're, or you know, a, you know, you're a big, you're under the rim, uh, and you're shooting a lot of layups and dunks, a lot of high percentage shots, and you're even missing half of those. Um, or B, yeah, it's like for three-point shooters, if you have like a 35, 40% free throw shooter, you're Steph Curry. Like, you know, like what in the world are you doing? And I've learned in life to look at my Enneagram non-resourceful one and say like, hey, it expects me to be perfect. And sometimes I just need to say, uh, it's okay to have, uh, to get three out of 10 here because I'm trying, I'm learning, I'm growing, I'm following my face. Everybody wins. And so, uh, yeah, that's one they're very critical. They can be self-critical. Um, they fight for ideas and concepts, typically. That's important because the eight fights for people. They fight for vulnerable people uh, in their healthiest form. Um, but they, uh, uh, the one tends to more fight for uh, ideas and concepts. Um, and so number two, the helper. Uh, their core desire is to be indispensable, to be needed, um, and to love people well. They again, view the world through other people's eyes. So they are always looking at you and they're reading your thoughts, they're mind reading. And they're thinking, what does that person need? What can I do for that person? What does that person need that they're not voicing? Um, and so you don't have to voice a lot of things with a one or a two. You can um, just exist and they will, they will fluff that pillow. They just noticed it looked a little flat, you looked a little bit tired. I thought, why not just come up and give them a little pat pat, get them up, perk up that pillow for you. And by the way, here's a beverage, uh, a nice, Mango Lacroix, and uh, I believe it's the French. And um, again, the product placement, give me some money, Lacroix. Come on, what up? Um, but it's delicious either way, and, and innocent. Where was I? Um, yeah. So the two. Yeah, you can be the helpful person. You can be. Uh, they're, they're always thinking through, how can I love and serve these people? They tend to read and they tend to insert themselves without being asked, which can be awesome. So much of that is awesome. However, they can overread and they can overinsert themselves. And so they can overread everything. That person, they just look down when I walked by. They hate me. They not only hate me, they've always hated me. They're my arch nemesis. They're trying to destroy me. They're actively looking to kill me today. They have a gun in their pocket, probably. And so, I mean, of course, these are caricatures just to kind of help be to teach well, but, um, they can overread and they can overinsert. That person needs help and no, they never asked for it, but I need to do it. And, uh, and sometimes when that person isn't grateful for it cause they didn't ask for it and therefore they didn't think to be grateful for it. Or maybe they're actually kind of upset that you did insert yourself in it when they don't validate the two by saying, Hey, that was really awesome. Now the two is like, how dare you? I vulnerably loved you and I served you and you, cast me to the side and again it's it's in the best form twos are amazing they will run through a wall for you they'll run through a wall for anyone um i love man I, sharon has a really high two and she's amazing what she does her uh some family members of hers are really high twos and man they just show up and be like hey just thought you needed this washer and dryer set uh yeah that's awesome hey just built you a garage in your backyard thanks <laughs> really cool. Um, and so they're, they can do really awesome, beautiful things. 
uh, and then they can over insert and they can over over uh, over read people and, and just you know kind of get too deep into that wormhole um, number three the achiever the successful person again they love to achieve they got every trophy every medal uh, you know they go into the achievement app on their phone uh, for like their their Apple watch if you have an Apple watch you'll know it has like health challenges they get that every month every year they have them all um, they, I mean, if that's their thing, I mean, again, it, it, the archetype is not as important as the behavior or the desire, uh, the be behavior is not important. The desire is important. And so it might be something where they, uh, achieve things because they, they, yeah, they're the CEO and they end the corner office or again, Dorothy Day, who was the poorest uh, missionary in the world, but she was a three because she was all about achieving the kingdom through, uh, poverty ministry. And so, uh, you can have that kind of three, uh, they tend to be very image conscious, conscientious. So uh, they know the image they're putting out. Um, and they often will, they'll say like a three immediately reads the room. So like a two, they'll read the whole room, but it's not like who needs something. It might be the situation of like, okay, who uh, can I be in this instance to, uh, to win the room or to be uh, in a good place? And so, uh, or to succeed or to, uh, or to accomplish a goal. And so a lot of times threes will have a, chame a chameleon personality. I have a decently high three. Um, and in, uh, you knew in high school, I just lived in that three. I achieved everything. I was the president of everything. Like there was even an organization called everything, which I was the president of. And uh, that's a joke. But if there was, I would have been. And I was in, I lettered in everything in, in academics and sports and music and forensics. I was, I did it all, and I had a highly chameleon-like personality. I There was a different version, I always say, there's a different version of Kent for every group of people I talked to that day. And so I'd go and I'd talk with, you know, uh, the anarchists, because they're at every high school in America. And so I'd jump in there and uh, be talking with them for a little bit. And uh, I would be a little bit more anarchist Kent, you know? I'd be a little more punk. Uh, and then I'd go to the punks, which are different than the anarchists, and I'd be like totally punk, you know? But then I'd go to the pop punks, and I'd be a little more pop punk. And then I'd go to, you know, uh, the the football team, and I'd be football Kent, you know? It's like, I was like a Barbie doll, and all the, I was Ken uh, with a T. And I was just able to put on everything. Again, it's a really, Threes is in a really beneficial way. I mean, uh, that's not always like, I think sometimes people see that chameleon thing as like, that's a manipulation tactic. Uh, not necessarily. Sometimes they read, sometimes in, in a really healthy three, they're reading you. They're reading, hey, this is how you best communicate. And so I'm going to communicate to you best and how you know how to communicate best. And so I do this all the time. Like, as I'm talking to someone, I start picking up your mannerisms. I start picking up uh, your common phrases. I start picking up your vocal diction. Uh, I can't, if you've got an accent, I'm going to have that accent by the end of the conversation. And you think, I'm like, I'm not mocking you. I can't stop it. Uh, it's just, it just happens. And so, um, yeah, they, uh, sometimes they, they tend to surround themselves with things that like promote success or vestiges of success. And so that might be like financials or things like that, that like kind of say like, ah, like there's a level of success. Um, they are, uh, they often can keep a very strong face. And again, they're just going to get everything done. They get stuff done. I mean, man, threes uh, have been, you know, in the midst of COVID-19. Well, if you just were like watching Netflix, they made their own Netflix series. 
and they've premiered it. And they've also figured out how to acquire Netflix from Netflix, and they own it now. And we're, I mean, no, America is a three-heavy uh, country because the American way of just a free market, which says, like, hey, if you're going to work and put in the hours and push hard uh, and not give up and be relentless, you're going to succeed, that drives three behaviors. So there's more threes in America uh, than in other countries, or there's more three-like behavior of even a non-three. You tend to be a little bit more like a three because um, that's just how the market tends to kind of uh, promote that. Uh, so um, that is three, four, the authentic person, the romantic um, their core desire is to be unique. Uh, now I already said like I'm like either a seven and a four or a four and a seven. So while I was just talking about three, I have a lot of three, uh, but it's not my dominant by far. Uh, and you know that if you work with me, then not. Uh, I'm taking a break, taking a break right now, and uh, maybe I'll take a break in the middle of this Instagram live video, right now. Breaks over. All right. Um, so the four is the authentic person. Their desire is to be authentic. Uh, now, a lot of people miscategorize them as the unique person. They desire to be unique. I think that's a miscategorization because the unique person is more like the sense of like, uh, like there is an element of like, yeah, I want to be unique. Uh, like I don't want to be like everybody else. I don't want to be just another number. Uh, I want to be different. Uh, but I think it's more just like I want to be authentic to who I am. And if I truly am being authentic to who I am, that will be in itself unique. Uh, but it's more the sense of like they read authenticity. They, they read people like the two or like the three, but the two is reading the room to say, what do you need and how can I love and serve you or make myself indispensable? The three is reading the room of like, how can I uh, acclimate to this room to be in a way that I can communicate best to them and win the room? Uh, and the four is reading the room of like, who's authentic in this room <laughs> and who's being authentically themselves and they see inauthenticity and it disgusts them. It's interesting, the three and the four, you can be a three with a four wing, four with a three wing. We'll get into wings another episode. Too much for right now. But uh, you can be a uh, you can be a wing of one of those, which means like, you know, that a good metaphor for the wing is like uh, you, the dominant number is your coffee and the wing is your creamer. So I'm a four dominant, but I have a three wing, so I have a little creamer of the achiever uh, that goes and, and, and colors the way that that you experience the four, the authentic person. So it's interesting that threes and fours are next to each other and can be wings of each other, where it's like threes often sometimes struggle with authenticity, with that chameleon desire we talked about, but fours uh, like need authenticity. And so they'll like despise the inauthenticity they see in like a chameleon-esque uh, personality. And so it's interesting that those, you can actually be both of those uh, and even kind of like notice it in yourself. I mean, you can be a four who has a very strong, like very strong image conscious at different times. And you can, uh, like, know you're being inauthentic. You're putting forward an inauthentic voice and an inauthentic vision of yourself to the world and, and, and kind of despise it. <laughs> so you can be the four and be like, I know I'm not being authentic myself and I hate that. Which is very four-ish behavior because they're sometimes really mopey. Um, and that's true because fours, like, again, they want to be authentic. Um, they talk about all the time that fours appreciate melancholy. And if you think of melancholy, typically that's like a sad term, right? But if you think of melancholy as the happy form of sad, and to people who are not fours or have no four in their blood are like, that's the most ignoramus thing you've ever said, Kent. But it actually makes sense. Think about sad movies or sad songs. Now, some of you think about them, you're like, don't make me, don't wanna, I hate them. But I am a four, a strong four, and I love sad movies. 
And I just love to watch them. And there's just something beautiful because they're real. You know, like my mom would always be like, why do you watch this movie? It's so sad. I'm like, because we experienced something that was real. It was beautiful. I mean, why don't you like this movie? Are you not authentic? Do you not care about things that are real, true, beautiful? Do you not understand that this world is broken by sin? And there's something beautiful to that. And so, yeah, I, I listen to sad songs when I'm happy because I like that. Um, sometimes I listen to happy songs when I'm sad just because I like the mood ju juxtaposition. Fours are very controlled by their emotions. We'll say to fours all the time. Uh, hey, you are, you're the mountain. You're not the storm. Because they sometimes feel like they are the wind and the storm and their emotions are them and they just get whipped around by their emotions. And they need to be said like, hey, you're the mountain. You might have that emotion and it doesn't have to dictate your whole life right now. And so you can be the mountain, not the storm. Um, and so, yeah, they often tend to be very artistic and creative, though they don't have to be. Um, and oh, they also they function like they have this missing piece of their humanity that everybody else has. Computer. Uh, they have this fundamental piece of their humanity that everybody else has, and they're missing it. And they're looking for this missing piece that everyone else seems to have figured out. But they don't got it. And so they just live their whole life like living like, where is that piece? And I don't even know what that piece is. But I know it's central to me, and I know I don't have it, and I know everybody else has got it. That's all I know. And that's like a function that they just live their lives in. It can be a little exhausting at times. Uh, but it makes for some good art. So, um, all right, number five. The investigator, the wise person, their core desire is to be self-sufficient. So a lot of times people think it's to acquire knowledge, which that's just, again, typically what they do. But a lot of times it's just to be self-sufficient. So it can be just to like, uh, yeah, a lot of times they love to explore. They, they're very curious by nature. They love to learn and acquire knowledge. Uh, but a lot of times it's because they want to learn all that knowledge and integrate it and apply it to their lives so that they can be self-sufficient. Um, uh, another way is that they sometimes not hoard, they'll hoard their knowledge. Like they'll have their knowledge and they see like, I don't want to give you my knowledge because like I worked hard for that knowledge. Sometimes they can be generous with it, but a lot of times they can like their core sin is avarice, which is greed or a form of greed, which is like, I don't want to share that with you. Um, and they can do that with knowledge or they can do that with the resources. A lot of times fours are like your millionaire next door, which means like, uh, if you read that book, the millionaire next door, it's like a person who like lives in a, drives a beater car, lives in a beater house has unscrewed all light bulbs in their house except for the one in the room that they happen to be at the time. And then when they leave, they unscrew it and then they go to the next one and unscrew that. And they never turned on two at the same time. They'll walk through in darkness and trip over 10 things because they're going to have a million dollars by the time they're 30 and be eating refried beans because that's how they got their million dollars. And so that a lot of times can be a five behavior. Um, again, they are, uh, but yeah, they're curious. They love to understand things. They love to break things down build them back together just to figure out how it works. Um, and yeah, they're really, I mean, usually just brilliant people and just fascinating to have conversations with. Um, sixes are loyalists. They're the safe person. Um, they desire to be safe. And so uh, they're usually, um, it takes them a bit to commit, but man, once they commit, they're the last to leave that ship. They're the last to leave your side. They will be with you to the very end because they're very loyal. But because of that, they're going to very much so be slow to commit because they're going to think through all the disaster scenarios that could go wrong. A six probably is running disaster scenarios in their head 24-7. And so uh, like, it, they're going through the grocery store and they... They know if a zombie apocalypse breaks out while they're in a grocery store, they've already thought about 
A, what time of day that most likely will happen, B, what aisle they want to be in in order to use things off of the shelf to protect themselves, and they know all the emergency exit routes. And they just, they're going to they're gonna live. If anyone's going to live, they're going to live. If they don't live, then you didn't make it. So I love this. Uh, if everyone in the room is comfortable, they'll start being like, hey, have you realized that this is going on with the coronavirus? This is going on with the economy? This is going on? Like, they'll like name everything you should be afraid of. And then they're like, is everyone as freaked out as I am? Okay, then I'm good. And they feel better about that. They just feel better if everyone else is freaked out. <laughs> and, uh, and so... Uh, Another thing about six is you can be a phobic six or a counterphobic six. A ooh, six wing five. What are you saying? I know how to survive the attack. <laughs> and if I like you, I'll tell you. All right. <laughs> that's good. Um, that's it. You got to know some sixes in your life. They'll be very loyal and they will like, if they do like you, they will help you. Uh, so, Caleb, you help me. Um, but uh, either way, um, yeah, no. Uh, uh, so with the uh, six, you can be a phobic or a counterphobic six. A phobic six are ones who are like, I'm afraid, so I'm going to draw back. The, the counterphobic six are, I'm afraid, so I'm going to punch first. Uh, and so sometimes a counterphobic six seems like an eight. We'll get to them in a second. Uh, but they're actually a counterphobic six. They're just like, yeah, I'm going to punch you <laughs> because I'm afraid. And, and that's how I deal with my fears. I, I attack first. Um, and so, uh, I love sixes cause they poke holes and stuff, you know, like I have an idea and they're like, have you thought about this? Have you thought about that? Have you thought about that? That could go wrong. And you're like, Oh, that's a good point. All right. Yeah. All right. That's a good idea. And so you can really improve your ideas by giving it to a six and then it shows up with all these holes back in it. <laughs> Give it to a one and then a six. And then, uh, you think you have a horrible idea, but now it's much better if you apply all that they, that they told you. Uh, all right. Number seven, uh, the enthusiast to the joyful person. I am a four and I'm a seven, and I just, I don't know which one is more dominant than me. Seven is the joyful person. We like to have fun. We like to like be out there, be like, what next? The, the seven is constantly thinking through more, more, more. How can I enjoy more? How can I experience more? Sevens live with an undying sense of FOMO or FOBO. And it's just like, what is the, what am I missing out on? What's the better option? And yeah, it's just like, let's, you know, if six, seven's got a right, you know, had unlimited resources and unlimited things, they would like, you know, wake up the day at Disney World and do the all parks by, you know, X o'clock uh, so that they had enough time to go downhill skiing after Rocky climbing, uh, or, you know, climbing uh, in the Rockies uh, and, you know, then drinks and cocktails and really good food. Uh, you know, downtown Denver, I guess, because that's where he ended up. Um, and and then, you know, a night gondola ride in Venice, Italy. Again, this is all impossible stuff, but this would be awesome. I mean, how awesome would that be, right? And and so, yeah, they're always excited. They, they sometimes struggle to experience pain, and they'll avoid pain, and they'll avoid pain by taking in just more experience. Um, sevens are wildly fun people. They tend to be, like, con connoisseurs. Like, if they're into something, they're into it. So me... I didn't drink coffee for the longest time. Then I started drinking coffee, and now I do Chemex, and it will be the best. It will change your life. I change my life every morning, one cup at a time. They also tend to be the most addicted personality because they're very addictive. They need sober-mindedness. They need, um, yeah, I, I, silence and solitude can be really big for sevens just because it can give a level of sobriety to that that you want more, you want more, you want more monster. Just sometimes he's just set and be content and you got enough. And so, yeah, it, you got to watch sevens. They're very fun. Can be, um, 
addicts on, on just about anything and everything. Because uh, again, it's the more, avoid the pain, it can be a problem. Uh, eight. Uh, eight is the challenger, the challenging person. They desire to be in control or they desire the right person to be in control. So it can be a situation where they're, they are, yeah, they probably think they're the best person to be in control. But if they challenge you and you stand up to the challenge and you prove yourself to be aptly prepared for being in control, then they're okay with that. So like if they come up to you, they will come up and emotionally or verbally punch you in the face. And if you are able to like take it and like even maybe show your strength and fight back and, and get them in a place where you say like, hey, I'm not going to take that. And you sit down and you might be like, okay, you're cool. I'm good with you. I remember a guy who, uh, a strong eight, who uh, uh, was going to join our church. And as he joined, he like then like asked tons of questions about like, what about this doctrine? What about this? And what about that? And, and all these things. And then at the end of the conversation, like I, I sat there and I asked him all, I was just like, wow, we're like one to join. He'd like, has like, he's never going to join. He's got all these issues at the end of the conversation. He's like, I enjoyed that heavily. That was great. <laughs> and it was just like, that's what we want to do. He just wanted to spar a little bit. Like I was telling somebody else in our church and he's like, yeah, that's just like an eight. They just want to like walk into a house, beat on the walls and the ceiling for a while just to see if it'll knock down. If it doesn't knock down, they feel good about it. They are all in or all out. There's no dimmer switches for eights. Um, they uh, they sometimes can bulldoze, or uh, so they'll, they'll kind of bulldoze you over, you know. Uh, or they can just totally eject. They can hit the eject button. Like if you fight them for too long, or if you don't let them, or they just don't feel safe, they're just uh, they're all out. And so yeah, it can be like the I'm, they're in, they're in, they're too, they're in, they're saying everything, they're fighting for everything, and then all of a sudden they're just totally disinterested with, disinterested with everything because they're they're out on that. Uh, they like high control environments. Uh, they like to find what the lowest common denominator is that they can control and then start there and scale up. Uh, it's funny. I know all my eights and, and COVID-19 when it first came down, they're all like, okay, what can I control? I'm going to get my house and I'm going to barricade in and I'm going to get the, like, the situation I can control. And then as they felt a little bit more safe, they like, you know, thought through other things that they could do or other ways that they could interact with other things, you know, time, like, all right, you can go out to get some groceries sometimes, every, once a month, you know, or something. Uh, you, you, sometimes, again, that's like thought to be a six behavior, but sometimes it can be an eight behavior because they want to feel in control. And if they feel out of control, they, they go down to the lowest common denominator. What's the thing that can't be taken from me? And then let's build up from there. Uh, they, they tend to be very, uh, justice focused, particularly in their healthy sense. They seek justice for others. So they can want to be in control, but they usually want to see that the vulnerable, those who are weaker are cared for. So they want to push you out of the way if you're, you shouldn't be, you're weak and you're in control. But if you're weak and you're not in control, they want to fight for your agency. They want to fight to put you into a place of, uh, of, yeah, this is someone who, uh, is made in the image of God and they're going to fight for your rights. Um, Nate Dunleavy is one of the most, uh, you know, passionate uh, eights I know, and also one of the most healthy eights I know. He's a pastor at Southern Northwest, and he is a lover of the vulnerable. He will fight for the vulnerable. Uh, if you are vulnerable, he will be so gentle towards you. If you are pressing the vulnerable, he has hard words, and watch out. <laughs> And I love him. I love the. I love his passion towards that, and I love how he fights for the vulnerable in almost everything. He's always thinking through that lens. Um, nine is the peacemaker, the peaceful person. My wife is nine. Uh, her her dominant style, and 
again, it's, they want to be at peace, but that peace might be I'm at peace with the world around me because everyone relationally is at peace. And and my my wife does like to be relationally at peace with everybody. When people are angry with me, with her, with with the church, with something, she's a little bit more tense and on edge with that. But it doesn't always have to be that. Sometimes, again, nines can be like, that's cool if all you guys are not at peace. Um, I'm just, you know, uh, that's not where I get my peace. I My peace is a situation where I just want to be at rest uh, and you know, I can just shut the world off and yeah, I don't care. You guys do what you want, you know, blow yourselves up, but I'm in here and I'm fine. Cause I, you know, I'm in this scenario. Uh, but nines, interestingly enough, they're thought of as very gentle people and they typically really are, but they also have a lot of anger and they're out of touch with that anger. They're also out of touch with their self and their desires. They can be highly indecisive. Um, they need options to choose. Whenever I go to my wife and say, Hey, where do you want to go for date night? She's like, I don't care. Wherever you want to go. Okay, uh, how about Brew Burger? Oh, not there. Okay, uh, how about uh, 20 Tap? Not there. Okay, um, 45 Degrees. Also not there, which she would never say ever. She loves half-price sushi Sunday night, 45 Degrees. Regardless, she, and then if I have that situation come up, I'm like, okay, uh, clearly you do care a little bit. So let's just, I'm going to throw out like genres of food and you just give me an up or down and we can at least kind of get within a ballpark of what you're actually thinking. And so it's helpful to give her options. Do you want this or do you want that? And she can say, I want this or I want, I want that one. Uh, cause she just, I think sometimes gets out of touch with what she thinks and what she feels. Nines if are objects that if they're in rest, they tend to stay in rest. If they're in motion, they tend to stay in motion. So if they're working hard, they can, they're not, you know, they can be lazy, like their core sin can be slothfulness, but a lot of times they, you know, they're, they're actually okay, like getting stuff done. Like my wife gets a ton done. Sometimes it's not the most important thing to get done because it was something that was going to promote peace in her life. Like one day I came home and she organized our entire garage, like with hooks and, and, and uh, bins and all these things. And like, it was beautiful. It was really peaceful in there. It feels great in there, but she had some other stuff she didn't get done because she was like, I just gotta, I, I wanna do this right now and it feels good. And, uh, and she did that. Nines also though, sometimes can live with like the messiest room in the world. Cause it's like, until it's their problem, it's not their problem. Until it's messing with their peace, they don't care. It'd be more peaceful to just like let it go and let it slide. And in one, then when it is messing with their piece, it's like, okay, now they are going to change and fix it. But again, they, sometimes you're like, you could, they can be living in a dilapidated house and you're just like, this doesn't affect you. You can't, you're, you're good with this. And if they are, they are. Second, they're not, they're not, but they're out of touch as to why that is. That's all of a sudden they're like, I feel very uneasy. And it's because I need to clean the whole house. Um, they, uh, what else? Uh, so sometimes they can avoid conflict or difficult things. Um, a phrase that you know, from Ian Cron's book, which I think is helpful, is nines. Uh, a lot of times nines demand very little from the world and expect the world to repay them the favor. And so, yeah, so can I just expect you just not to expect too much from me? Um, not again that nines don't give it. They just don't want that pressure or that lack of peace from having to give it a lot of times. Um, but yeah, their superpower a lot of times is they can understand all perspectives really well. They can like see, that's why they're really good conflict mediators a lot of times. They can see honestly where you're coming from and they can see where somebody else is coming from and they understand it. They, they, whether they agree or not, they understand where you're coming from and uh, they can really have a good insight into that. Uh, okay, uh, that is a rundown of the types. Again, I'll jump back in another time and do wings, arrows, triads, but I do want to say a couple words about spiritual formation. 
Um, just because, again, I think this is helpful to think like, okay, that's all a lot of helpful information, Kent, but how does it make me formed into the image of Jesus? Well, a couple things. One, it increases self-awareness, and increased self-awareness is increased God-awareness. I mean, if you increase that, I forget who said that quote, I think it was maybe Calvin who said, all self-awareness is God-awareness, and all God-awareness is self-awareness. You can't grow in one without growing in the other, and just naturally. And so when you increase your self-awareness of how God made you, how he made you strong, how he made you weak, then that increases your overall awareness of, yeah, who you are, how you fit in the body, how you serve others, uh, how you relate to others, and then how who God is to you and how you relate to God well. And so some ways that I tangibly use the Enneagram, I use it for caution tape. I, and by that I mean, I already mentioned it, I have a real non-resourceful one. And so when I start getting really self-critical, I say to myself, oh, I might be under a little bit of stress. I might need to pump the brakes. I might need to slow down a little. And so yeah, I, I check my life and I pursue some mental health when that happens. Um, it also just helps me understand my weaknesses and my gifts. Again, I already got on the soapbox, but I just want to jump right back on it just to say the Enneagram is not about becoming good at all things so that you are independent of all other people. It's meant to say, what part of the body are you? What are you strong in? What are you weak in? What do you, um, what do you need? Uh, what, what perspective do you bring and what perspective does somebody else bring? And so, yeah, you don't want to become all good at all nine. Like spend one hour strengthening your strength rather than 15 hours strengthening your weakness and getting the maybe the same result or maybe not even. And and so, hey, you start functioning. Like it, it helps you understand what you bring to the table and then it helps you understand others. And this is where I think the money is really at uh, with the Enneagram as a tool. It helps you understand, yeah, just who someone is, where they're coming from, what their perspective is, what their priorities are. I remember talking with a friend uh, and we were, he was helping me through a conflict I had with someone and uh, they was just talking me through and, you know, he was using Enneagram language because he knew it was something I knew about. And so he said like, hey, think about this person. I know you don't agree with their choices right now. I don't, I know you don't agree with, but like think about their Enneagram profile and think about how that means that they're, they got a lot, they've got a lot of shame that they're running from. Um, you know, they're, they're trying to, to fight that back. And they said, think about their history, think about their story, think about where they came from and, and, and their family history and all that. And just like, think of all that shame that they are running fast from. And man, that gave me a lot of empathy, a lot of understanding. All of a sudden, a lot of decisions that though I didn't agree with maybe the decision, like they made sense. Um, it was helpful. And yeah, it just gave me tons of empathy. And I was able to engage conversations and relationship with them much more effectively. It also can just help me understand how do people process the world and me realizing that way of processing the world isn't dumb. You know, I just think like sometimes it's a seven or a four. I'm like, uh, let's just go with seven. I, like, let's have some fun. And then a six is like, uh, well, when we are we going to go have fun in the midst of COVID-19 social distancing? Like, what if we get the coronavirus? And like, oh, yeah, I guess I hadn't thought about that. And they're like, well, do you have a plan? Uh, no. Uh, no, the plan was let's have fun. And by you making me make a plan, I am now not having fun. So this is defeating my plan. And I can look at that six, that person who has a dawn at six and say, hey, there's actually something really good and right and, and true about who you are. Um, and, and you, there's a strength that you bring that sometimes your strength needs to win out. Like, hey, this is a dangerous time. Not the time to go have fun without a plan. 
Or sometimes my strength needs to win out. Hey, this is a safe time, and we could lighten up and, and not worry about that and just have a good time and be in the moment. Um, it depends. you got to know your strength. you got to know the time. you got to work it out. And sometimes, it, a lot of times, it's, it's somewhere in the middle. It's a mix of your perspectives. And so it, it can help you process the world or see how others process the world. I can start to, I can disciple others better. I can see like, man, where are they weak? Like where based off of kind of like their strengths, do I, should I expect like all strengths are connected to weaknesses on the shadow side. Uh, like, the, like every, every strength, uh, if you think of it as like a bright light, <laughs> casts a shadow on the other side of it. And so like people's strengths are intrinsically connected to their weaknesses and their weaknesses are intrinsically connected to their strengths. And so when you're asking someone to get rid of their weakness, if you did that, if you lobotomize their weakness, you would also lobotomize their strength. And that's always helpful to remember that like the things that I hate about this person are connected to the things I love about this person. And so a lot of times it just helps me enter in and be like, oh, wow, this is their strengths. And therefore, I, I see and I understand why they have these weaknesses. And I can help them understand that. But I can also help absorb that and, and be gracious in that and, and, and give perspective but not, not demand perfection. And so, yeah, I just think it helps the body see themselves as a body and function as a body and say the eye says to the foot, Hey, you've got a totally different job, totally different perspective, but yet I can't function without you. And the foot says to the ear, same thing. And we can be a body that builds each other up in love, in maturity, in unity, in the spirit, which we're going to get into more this weekend. Okay, that's it for this episode. Again, I think I'll jump on again and go a little bit deeper into some other facets of the Enneagram, but I hope that at least gives you uh, an overview and a sense of how it can be used in spiritual formation. So, all right, take it easy.